At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. TCM Underground is the Friday late-night movie franchise from Turner Classic Movies, showcasing the best of classic cult favorites and hard-to-find films. Now there's a new book inspired by the series from programmer Millie DeCherico and film critic Quitoya Murray. Later this hour, the authors join City Lights senior producer Kim Drobes to tell us more about TCM Underground, 50 must-see films from the world of classic cult and late-night cinema. Plus, music contributor Vaughn Phoenix stops by with his monthly edition of Punk Black To Go. First, Erin Nicole Henry is an Atlanta-based artist with a passion for nature and depicting the human body. Her oil paintings contain images that bring awareness to issues affecting marginalized groups and serious themes. While her work has been featured in group shows for many years, Henry's first solo exhibition, Open Window Kisses, is on view at Cat Eye Creative through January 14th. Erin Nicole Henry joins me now via Zoom. Welcome to City Lights. Hi, so happy to be here. Well, when did you first discover you were a visual artist? Wow, that's that's an interesting one because I guess there was never really a, a conscious moment. Uh, my parents have said pretty much ever since I could hold a pencil, which they even said I started doing quite young. I have always been doodling all over my homework, getting in trouble by my peers. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, I, I really think I remember that art class uh, in elementary school was absolutely my favorite. I couldn't wait to go above two or three times a week. It was on that rotation. And I really feel like it's always been a part of my life. And I think it starts out a, as a part of every child's life. And unfortunately, we hear the saying a lot. However, it goes where, you know, the, everybody's born creative 
at some point we just grow into adults and, you know, deal with the real world and we stop nurturing that creative side of us. And I think I've just been blessed to have the opportunities and support and love and everything that has enabled me to just keep going with it. So I, I never been able to picture my life without creating. I think every single day I wake up with a goal to at least make something. But I guess to more answer your question, I really started taking it seriously uh, as a profession around high school. I think I realized that this is like what I really want to do with my life. And I really, really started focusing and honing in and training and oil painting to uh, start that journey. Hmm. I read that you decided to drop out of art school. That may have been for better or worse. How would you assess it? I feel like uh, at least so far it has, I would say, worked out for the better. I think it gave me a unique opportunity to be in school for a little while, meet people, be taught by professors, which a lot of the stuff I was, I mean, I was mostly self-taught going into school. So that was a unique opportunity. And I really, what I uh, just grew frustrated with was not having enough time really as I wanted to paint. That's all I wanted to do all day was get up and paint. And, you know, now I have to go to math class and writing class. And while I appreciate those, you know, educational opportunities, and I really did enjoy my time in college, parts of it grew frustrating from, it seems like, I'm trying to word this delicately, I guess. I was <laughs> in classes where I felt like I was in classes with artists who didn't really care. I felt like I was hearing a lot of people you know, complaining about doing painting assignments. And I was like, had big question marks over my head because I'm like, well, don't you want to be a professional artist? Why, like when we leave this class, you don't go home and keep painting. I don't understand that. And it was kind of frustrating. So I felt like I like could have been getting more out of it um, a lot of times. Yeah, but overall it was basically just the time thing. I, I was ready to just jump right in. And very soon after I left school, I got my first gallery contract with the DK Gallery in the Marietta Square. I was 19, I believe. And uh, so that kind of set me up nicely for, I guess, you know, the quote unquote real world with just starting to at least sell work and just the uh, producing at a pace where I can make enough money selling work. Hmm. How would you describe your artistic style? I would say it's definitely based in realism, uh, quite obviously, with, you know, I paint a lot of figures, nudes, and if I'm not painting figures, I'm painting, you know, sometimes plants, animals. I like to paint things that feel, that are organic, I suppose, that have interesting organic shapes that can never be replicated otherwise. It's realism, but not hyper-realism. It goes into an expressionistic realm. People love to use the word abstract. It might be abstracted, but it's not uh, technically abstract because there are, there is an object in those paintings. But yeah, I guess I would say uh, expressionistic realism. Hmm. And I know your work is very powerful in terms of the attention it calls to important 
issues, LGBTQ equality, sexual harassment and abuse. Would you talk about how you use your canvas to advocate? Mm -hmm. I guess it just kind of feels natural to do that. It's part of a way to express like my frustration with the world, like that piece, the collection of pieces, there were 49 displayed pieces of, for this piece I had called It Could Be You, where I picked off random faces from the internet. And it was, it's, it, I mean, it's just, art is the way to start a conversation. And people love talking about art and what it means. And for so long, and even still, you know, I, a lot of the things that I paint doesn't even necessarily have an intention towards a theme. It just is there to start a conversation and I can put my feelings or frustrations or happiness or sadness into a painting. And then that's my time I get to have with the painting. And then I get to, at some point, uh, I call, I say, abandon it, and then it's the world's. And then it's, I don't really even think about that painting anymore. And it's really cool to see how people receive it and will receive the conversation. And the times I do create things with intention, like the It Could Be You series, I saw people responding to it really interestingly. And people wanted to be painted, even though it's kind of a dark thing to be painted in this context and yeah the the human interaction with just starting the conversation I think is is the goal when it's finally out in the world hmm. I'm curious in terms of what you heard back in it could be you I heard even from other sources some very interesting things not everybody liked it some people and keep in mind too that this whole collection premiered in a pretty uh, traditional, a pretty conservative area uh, in Georgia. So um, some people thought it was kind of, I guess you could say a little too edgy. And there's no, keep in mind, these are just little squares that have faces on them. So there's nothing directly graphic or anything about the pieces itself. But uh People would, I heard a comment that says, well, maybe people wouldn't get sexually assaulted if they like didn't wear this. And it's like, uh -huh. oh, like, wow. So this is bringing up like some even very uncomfortable situations and conversations. You go in a lot of times expecting everybody just to know like what you intend it to be or what you want it to be or what you think is right. But sometimes it doesn't go that way. And so, like I said, that's an interesting way to open up a conversation with, with somebody who maybe needs to have more conversations about it. Yeah. Did you ask permission for the faces, to use the faces you took? Interestingly enough, I did not. And I did a little research on this to make sure that I was in the green with this, I guess, once you post your face, and that kind of even was my point too, is that like anybody can be, anybody randomly, anybody on earth can be a, I'm using air quotes right now, a victim. So when you post your face on Instagram, legality wise, if you post a selfie on Instagram, anybody can do what they want with that photo. 
typically I don't take advantage of people's content like that, but I thought it was kind of went along with the whole narrative of the piece because I was painting a new face every single day. So I just pick a face and then I would paint that face on an eight by eight wooden panel. And then that became part of the collection. And so people actually, I mean, got excited by the idea of getting their face painted. Usually people, yes, people don't like having their photos stolen, but I think it kind of went along with the narrative of you might just be scrolling through Instagram one day. And if you follow me all of a sudden, you might see your face on a, on a eight by eight little square painting. And it could be uncomfortable. Maybe it makes you think, maybe it, I think it goes along with the whole idea of anybody can kind of just like take advantage of you any, any day. And I hope, I hope nobody thought I was taking advantage of them by that. I never got that kind of reaction. Mostly, I mean, everybody was excited to do it. And mostly they were really random, just completely random faces. Some of them were celebrities. I abstracted most of the faces to where a lot of times you might not even recognize it if it was yourself even. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, and my guest is the artist Erin Nicole Henry. Erin, would you describe your murals in Atlanta? Yes, I have. I painted my first mural, which is now covered over by my third mural because of limited spots, because the art is beautifully packed with murals now. It is on Wiley Street in Cabbage Town. It's kind of right across from 97 Astoria, which is that bar on the corner. And then I have a, a memorial for this uh, man named Trey, who unfortunately was robbed and murdered uh, a few years back. And I was honored to do his memorial piece that should be there for a long time. And then uh, lastly, I think my other public mural is going to be off of I believe it's called Ellsworth Industrial Boulevard. You can't really miss it. It's, it's my biggest mural yet. It's bright blue, lots of saturated color. And that one was a really fun one to get almost over my fear of heights with because that one was bigger. <laughs> oh, wow. I know you've been involved in many group art shows, but this is your first solo exhibition. How do you feel? I am very excited. This has been a goal of mine, uh, obviously, for a long time. This is the first time I felt like, I guess, like, quote unquote, real pressure. There are a little nerves in there. I guess there's obviously a lot more expectations. Uh, knowing that when people walk into that gallery, they are there specifically to see my art and only my art. I'm so excited uh, just to be able to share my, especially my newest work with, with the world. So I'm ecstatic. Are there a few you'd like to point out now? My newest collection, Open Window Kisses, is the newest work that I'm really proud of because I got to shoot all of the original photos. My lovely friend Emily was the model. And then my lovely friend Trap was also there styling and, you know, vibe producing. And we had a really great fun day, uh, really just hunkering down and shooting a lot of content for me to paint for the next year. And we got some beautiful images and it's really nice to be able to paint from an original photo that I shot myself because it feels like I truly like 100% made this. It feels much more original 
then when I do use, you know, the resources online, I have for other models and stuff, but it is different, I think, than my other work. It's a little more realistic, a little less expressionistic, like with the painting style, but it is probably some of the most technically well done work, in my opinion. I use a lot of bright, bright, saturated, high chroma colors and the images were originally shot with like bright magenta and green lights. So it was definitely a challenge and lots of building layers of oil paint to be able to replicate this kind of crazy bright light in that way. And I'm very excited about it because it's, it literally feels like when I look at these paintings, they emanate light. So I'm very excited about those. And you can tell these are all collective in a series. And yeah, and then I have some other work that goes along nicely, but it has a little bit of a different energy and, you know, scheme to it. Contemporary artist Erin Nicole Henry's first solo exhibition, Open Window Kisses, is on view at Cat Eye Created through January 14th. And more information can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, senior producer Kim Drobes dives into the world of classic cult films with the creatives behind TCM Underground. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Every Friday night, Turner Classic Movies hosts TCM Underground. The late-night movie franchise showcases the best of classic cult favorites and hard-to-find films. Atlanta-based TCM underground programmer Millie DeCherico is at the helm of this weirdly wonderful world of cult films. Last year, DeCherico partnered with writer and film critic Quitoya Murray, and together they produced the new book, TCM Underground, 50 must-see films from the world of classic cult and late-night cinema. When the co-authors recently spoke with 
City Light senior producer Kim Drobes, DiCerico began by defining what makes a cult film. It depends on who you talk to, but for me, I feel like a cult film is one that has a very passionate audience, but I also think that that audience is in a position to rediscover it. I I think a lot of cult movies are kind of being reappraised a lot of times because maybe the film was released and then critically or commercially unsuccessful uh, or the film wasn't released at all and it's kind of (laughs) being rediscovered. But I think the rediscovery aspect is a big reason why a film becomes a cult movie. That makes Mm -hmm. sense. Would you say that commercial success would disqualify a film from becoming a cult film? You know, I, I, that's, I wrestle with that sometimes because I feel like um, a lot of what I've championed in the past as a, a cult movie programmer and as a cult movie fan is something that um, was misunderstood is maybe the best <laughs> word to use. And a lot of times I feel like popularity and success is um, <laughs> the opposite of, of being misunderstood. But that, I could be wrong about that, but I, I just, I feel strongly about a movie that is now being rediscovered is now being reappraised and is sort of taking on a new life and I feel like if a movie is just a smash hit (laughs) when it comes out then they got nowhere to go but up really (laughs) well Toya do you mind if I call you Toya as I know some of your friends do Yes, Toya is perfectly fine. Thank you. Well, Toya, as a film critic and a writer, you're also a former TCM editorial manager. So your pairing with Millie here makes perfect sense. When did the two of you decide you wanted to write a book together? Uh, It happened uh, early into the pandemic. So we were actually, Millie was approached first. Uh, This had been kind of a back and forth situation that she was involved with, with uh, writing the TCM Underground book that just kind of didn't happen at the right time. And then during the pandemic, she was approached to uh, write this book, but she was in, you know, and I'll let her speak to more of that, but she was just in the process of a lot of changing and a lot of moving going on in her life. So she approached me and uh, asked me if I would be willing to write it. And I was completely honored, completely overwhelmed by just the thought of being involved because I've been a TCM Underground fan for years well before I got involved with TCM or anything it was just one of my favorite uh channel like TCM has always been one of my favorite channels but just underground itself has just introduced me to so many great movies so I was completely honored you know with the the opportunity but at the time I was in the process of getting ready to move to Paris uh which I'm currently in right now because I left on the wild dream of wanting to live in Paris and go back to school and get my master's so we were both in this really interesting place where we knew we wanted to do this but we just knew the timing wasn't right for one of us to take it on by ourselves so we kind of just came together and just you know I I presented to her well what if we just kind of write this together we co-write it and then that's what happens so we just split the titles 25 25 and it ended up just being a perfect situation to just kind of you know be solitary kind of writers doing this on our own but then coming together and just having these like a perfect you know left brain right brain of uh, situation of how we kind of had it come to be. So you guys split it up 25 and 25. How did you each go about choosing the films that would be covered? 
So Millie's been keeping a document of all the films that have ever aired on TCM Underground. And I have had just a, a huge bank of all the films that could ever potentially even be on TCM Underground. <laughs> it was just something that we both just kind of, I think Millie was the one that recognized, okay, well, it should be tied to what has already been programmed on TCM Underground after all of these years, because TCM Underground has been on for uh, almost two decades at this point. I believe it's 16 years. So we just kind of looked at this list and we Honestly, we came at it separately. And when we just kind of came together to show each other, this was our initial list of what we chose. We had a perfect balance of not really choosing the same things. We had only maybe one oh, or wow. two films that we chose together. And, you know, Millie was gracious enough to let me have both of them. It just really worked out in a, in a kind of perfect way. So with that many years of TCM Underground, Millie, how many movies have you screened? I think as of right now, it's over 400 films that have ever played as part of the TCM Underground franchise. So we had quite a list to pick from. And like Toya said, it's been over the course of a decade and a half, all, getting close to 20 years, which is wild. I don't like thinking about that sometimes. <laughs> um, but it's uh, kind of hard to believe that I've had a job for this long, considering <laughs> how how a lot of people don't stay in jobs for as long as, as this. So I'm very thankful. So true. For the just like pump Millie up a little bit more too, just because with <laughs> those 400 films, I mean, these are some of like a, a lot of these movies had not been seen before ever on well you know not on television some ever like since they had been released uh, a lot of a lot of my first time seeing a lot of these movies were on TCM underground you know she just did such a perfect job of curating these things over the years and just kind of always being a, like one step ahead of where the the cult circuit kind of was or where it was heading and i just think it's really awesome that you know all these great movies just got to have another life through TCM underground for sure. And and you bring up a question. So the movies mentioned in this book are what I can only call some very deep cuts. So how easy or difficult is it for someone like me to find the films that are mentioned in the book? It depends on how savvy you are on the internet. I will say some are very hard to find, but I think as cult movie fans, that's the the joy in it. It's like doing a scavenger hunt. Um, sometimes, mm -hmm. you know, it, it can, thankfully, because of writing this book, we had different level of access and just having TCM as the, you know, the, the, the back end being able to help us out. But there's all these really fun, interesting ways of finding it if you look hard enough. And I think that's the cool part about it. I think we're really lucky in Atlanta to still have a video store. Yeah. So Videodrome mm -hmm. in the Highlands is a great place to find some of these films. And I, I have it on authority. I've talked to the folks at Videodrome and I think that they have, they said something like, 47 of the 50 titles <laughs> in the book. That is yeah. fantastic. We are lucky to have them in our city still. It is rare. Yeah, it definitely sure. is. And that's the, the thing I miss the most about Atlanta. I miss having Videodrome. I miss having the Plaza Theater. I miss having these places where people who enjoy the same type of movies, they all kind of come together and show these things. Or you can go to the Videodrome guys and even ask them, you know, hey, how can I find this movie? And they're always so helpful at figuring out whether how to find it or they will figure out a way to order it to get it in store. 
So you guys divvied the book up into a few different sections. Let's talk about each of them. And if you would, I would love for each of you to tell me your favorite movie that's in this section. And I know it's hard to choose a favorite baby, but I'm asking you to do it. So this first section is called Crime Time. Millie, what's your favorite in that section? So... You know, for for cult movies, crime is a kind of big genre. And so, I mean, having to pick my favorite one is really hard. But I think I'll choose this movie called Shack Out on 101, which is this very strange noir film. It came out in 1955. It stars Lee Marvin. And it was made sort of during the blacklist era. So it has this theme of McCarthyism and and it's just very strange. Even for a noir <laughs> film, it's very strange. And it has like almost comedic moments, which is also a weird thing to, ha- to happen during a noir film because usually noirs are very tense and dramatic. But that might be my favorite. I feel like that movie is pretty, it's pretty hidden. I don't think a lot of people really know about it, which makes it kind of cool to me so understandable and toya what's your favorite from the crime time section i want to say it's hard for me to say but i know i gotta say i'm gonna get you sucker <laughs> um definitely is a childhood so favorite it's a childhood favorite of mine it's a movie that i grew up um just watching kind of on repeat it was you know the same level as re-watching airplane and naked gun and just all of these really wacky zany movies and i just love that there is this film that is almost like a love letter to the black exploitation era of film and i also i really love the the wayans brothers and the the scary movies only the first two that wayan and um that that marlon and sean are directly involved in but uh i just i really think that it's such a brilliant movie for just all these really silly elements but also it's so smart in kind of how it deconstructs the genre and i really love that it inspired something like black dynamite that came out you know in 2009 which was one of my all-time favorite movies so i just think that it's a brilliant way of showing action of showing you know all the drama of the streets but just having a good sense of humor while doing it Well, Toya, we'll stick with you and we'll move on to the next section, which is titled Domestic Disturbances. What's your fave in this section? Oh, this one is a this one's a hard one. I think I would have to say for me, I was very excited to talk about Flesh Pot on 42nd Street. Uh, It's this uh, Andy Milligan movie. It's made kind of at the 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 start of this the porno chic era that was happening um i really love gritty new york i love new york in the the late 60s and early 70s i just loved it this time period that we had in american history where it was you know the the cusp of all of these social changes that were happening i admire that film for the type of story that it tells it follows a sex worker and you know her desires for love and it's also kind of somewhat semi-auto not not autobiographical but the lead uh, actress in it had a very kind of similar melancholy uh way of going through life so i think that movie for me when i first watched it just i was also just kind of shocked at how 
modern it is where I was even, you know, kind of thrown off by some of the language that's used and how they talk to each other and just how unapologetic it is in terms of sexuality and in terms of, of just gender fluidity. So I think it's a really powerful film that I have not really heard anyone ever talk about. And so it's something that I hope gets a lot more people interested and just finds its way into other people's worlds. And Millie, what about you for a domestic disturbance? Oh, gosh, this one's really tough because most of the entries in this section are my choices. I don't know what that says about me, but I will say my most enjoyable film that I wrote about for this section was this movie called Remember My Name from 1978. It was a Alan Rudolph film. Uh, Alan Rudolph was a protege of Robert Altman, the director Robert Altman. And it's just a very interesting melodrama slash thriller. And it stars Geraldine Chaplin, who is the daughter of Charlie Chaplin. And she is a woman who was just released from prison after killing the new flame of her ex-husband. And her ex-husband is played by Anthony Perkins of Psycho fame. I think it's kind of this semi-modern take on like the old 1940s Betty Davis sort of melodramas. And it's kind of creepy and interesting. There's a lot of like gender reversal storylines and that kind of thing. So it's a kind of hard one to find, but I think if you do find it, it's really enjoyable. I'm hearing a repeated theme from both of you that a lot of these movies were seemingly ahead of their time. Definitely. I think that's what makes them so great to revisit. And I think kind of going back to Millie's point about, you know, what makes a cult film, I think that there's a special science that goes into it where it's, you know, maybe it is box office failure or a lack of critical reception. But I think that time is a very big piece of that element, because I think that a lot of these movies that do fail, that aren't really appreciated in their in their time period for one reason or another is just, you know, give it another 20 years and a different audience rewatches it from different eyes. And because society changes in the way that it does, people are just kind of ready for these different sorts of messages. So I think that that's what makes a cult film truly special is that if when given time, it's like a fine wine, it just gets better. Well, Molly, tell us about the section Fright Club and your favorite there. Fright Club is definitely a horror section. And I will say my favorite in this section is Blackula. Uh, It is a classic horror film, if you ask me. Um, (laughs) And I did. I, yes, I absolutely love it. It's made by an African-American filmmaker and stars a pretty much entire African-American cast. William Marshall, who plays Blackula, he's such a great actor and he was just very well-respected and classically taught. And just the idea that he plays this character named Blackula is, is really great. I mean, it proves that a movie like this can appeal to like young people and be fun and funny, but also have true legit chops. Like a lot of these actors are incredible actors in this film. So Toya, do you have a horror favorite from Fright Club? Oh, definitely. This is if, if hmm. the, uh, if the previous 
section is that it is all Millie's world, the horror one. This is definitely, most of these are mine. <laughs> I love horror. It's my favorite genre. So I'm like, I was, I was thrilled to write about all of these films and to live in this kind of horrific mindset, which has its effects. I don't recommend it, but um, <laughs> I think for, for me, and I, I kind of want to say Ganja and Hess because of that, because Ganja and Hess is a perfect kind of uh, bookend to Blackula. It's also uh, directed by an African-American um, director, writer, Bill Gunn, who's fantastic. It's a beautiful art film, but I'm going to cheat. I'm going to say The Brood, <laughs> which is a, a David Cronenberg film that I absolutely adore. It kind of plays around with this idea of epigenetics and, and what you carry, the trauma that you carry from your childhood or from your family and how that, you know, how the, the things that we hold within physically affects our bodies. Um, I just think it's such an interesting concept that is only recently kind of being played with in film. And I'm interested to see kind of where it goes, but I think it's a fantastic movie. It's very sad. It's very dark, but it's also, you know, in Cronenberg fashion, very gruesome and disgusting. And it's about sores and lesions on the body. And it's just, it's everything that I love. <laughs> All right. Well, we, then we have rebellion and youth movements. Millie, tell us about this one. This was kind of uh, an interesting section of the book because it was kind of trying to do different things. It was definitely a place for movies about uh, kids or teenagers or young people, but it was also about sort of punk rock and um uh you know youth movements and that kind of thing so yeah so we try we try to do a couple different things with this section my favorite i think of these films is this movie called ladies and gentlemen the fabulous stains which came out in 1982 and it was essentially the movie that pretty much created the riot girl movement in the 90s at least it was uh uh, deeply inspiring to that movement. Um, and it's essentially about a trio of teenage girls that start a punk rock band and tour America. And they play uh, music with actual adult men who are in their own punk rock <laughs> bands, including actual members of the clash and the sex pistols. And you have essentially Laura Dern and, Diane Lane, who are two very famous adult actresses, they were in their teen years when they made this movie. So they were actual teenagers and they were hanging out with members of the Sex Pistols <laughs> making this film. So it's very special to me. Amazing. Toya, do you have a favorite from a youth movement or a rebellion? Yeah, I think for me, I have to pick, and there's so many good ones in this section too, but I would have to pick Emma May. Emma May, which was also called uh, Black Sisters Revenge, is this very small kind of slice of life, almost type of movie um, that was made in 1976. It's you know, Black directed by Jamal Fanaka. It's about this young Black girl from the South who has to go live with her family in Compton, LA. And it's just this really amazing 
slow speed kind of movie where you just watch this girl who's, you know, learning to, you know, it's, it's a fish out of water tales. So her family doesn't really understand her and she doesn't understand them. And she has to prove herself to not only her family, but to the environment that she's in. And then it goes on this wild chase where all of a sudden there's a bank robbery and there's all these weird things that kind of happen. But Emma May, uh, Jerry Hayes, the actress that plays her is just such a phenomenal lead. And I really just love watching her in this movie. And it just reminds me a lot of my, like growing up, just looking at photo albums of my family and my mom and my dad when they were young. And so I never got to grow up watching movies that reflected my family or people that looked like me and talked like my family and stuff like that. So it's really cool to see this really beautiful movie where everybody just looks cool. They have the Afros, they have awesome outfits on. Um, and yeah, it's just kind of a hangout film with a lot of these other interesting elements of just kind of social commentary that's present in it. So definitely MMA for me. All right, Toya, take us to our last section, visual delights and other strange mind melters. What's this one about and what's your favorite? So this one is for all of the weirdo, artsy, druggy inspired, experimental type of films. They run the gamut, they're all over the place, but they're a little bit of our potpourri section where they couldn't necessarily fit anywhere else. So they're perfect for these kind of visual delights. Um, I think one that I'm really, really proud to have brought to this book, and I just really love this movie as well, uh, of course, but it's a Funeral Parade of Roses. It's this 1960s Japanese film that follows a group of uh, trans women who are uh, in the Japanese, you know, LGBTQ community in the 60s. And it's just this very odd experimental film where it's kind of part documentary and then it's, you know, part drama and it's based off of uh, Oedipus Rex. And so there's a little bit of a retelling there. It's a weird coagulation of things together that just makes for this movie that is just unbelievably mind blowing. You kind of feel like you're on drugs when you're watching it. And a lot of the characters are doing drugs as well. And that's reflected in the narrative. I was very lucky to have seen it in a very cult environment, Videodrome, this was years ago. They put on a screening that, was, that wasn't even out plaza theater it was in a restaurant in the back of the restaurant with just a screen up and there was like 16 of us who were all sitting there watching this movie and my mind was absolutely blown so i've been in love with this movie ever since oh wow well millie take us home can you follow that what's your favorite from this section goodness gracious i i've had to change my mind about 800 times since she brought it up (laughs) i I have to say i'm gonna probably go with maybe one of the tried and true classics in the book which is beyond the valley of the dolls from 1970 it feels like one of the more better known cult movies in the book it was directed by russ meyer who's a very famous cult and exploitation director and the screenplay was written by him and Roger Ebert, which I think is really interesting. It was like the only screenplay that Roger Ebert, the the film critic, wrote. Fascinating. Um, yeah. And it is, I mean, talk about a mind melter. It has it all, as I like to say. <laughs> There's a very big 
countercultural undercurrent to the film because obviously 1970 so it's very fast paced there's a lot of a lot of rapid editing in it but it's also about like an all-girl band and it's it's got everything in this movie it's sex drugs rock and roll murder music and quite honestly it is kind of a product of its time in a lot of ways which i think you know is very fascinating i mean some of these movies were ahead of their time for sure and then some of these movies are actually like a really good snapshot of a specific time and place and mm. i feel like beyond the mm-hmm. beyond the valley of the dolls is that type of movie TCM underground programmer Millie Tichirico and film critic Quatoya Murray. Their new book is TCM Underground, 50 must-see films from the world of classic cult and late-night cinema. More information about the book and the movies mentioned in this conversation is on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. Coming up, we'll check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix for this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Wrights. It's great to have you along. It's time to check in with City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. Vaughn is the president and co-founder of Atlanta's cultural and media phenomenon Punk Black. And he joins us monthly to highlight artists of color performing in a variety of musical arenas, many of which break stereotypes and expectations. Here's Vaughn Phoenix with this month's edition of Punk Black To Go. Greetings, my friends. I'm City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix, and this is Punk Black To Go. For the unfamiliar, Punk Black is a media network that features people of color in the rock, art, cosplay, and nerd lore communities. Each month, I'll be bringing you more bands that I know and I love and I know you'll love. So let's start out with a punk black story. So I actually rattled my brain a bit for a punk black story for this month because I was trying to find something that was based around the holidays or Christmas, but I couldn't think of anything. But as far as shows that we've done during this time period, um, <laughs> it makes me think back to the seventh punk black, or we called it punk black episode seven. It was um, a new Star Wars was dropping out that month, so we decided to make a Star Wars theme which is cool because um, that sort of led us into the mindset of maybe including cosplay in Punk Black in the future. So the show overall was great. Um, People dressed up in um, different Star Wars outfits. There were lightsabers. We have pictures of um, people holding the lightsaber. It was really, really awesome. And the bands did really, really well. I can't remember all of the bands for that day, but I know we had Blood Plums, um, Howling Star, which is my band, and a band called Guilty Verdict. Now, Guilty Verdict (laughs) takes me to another place because... Even before they played that show, I hadn't seen them in years, but we've known them for a really long time. So as far as a old story, my band back in the day used to play in front of a Big Lots in a <laughs> in a little square um, near my parents' house in Lithonia. Um, it was uh, the Covington Square, actually, was what it was called. But we played at a Big Lots in front of there. We used to play there all the time. 
for change, basically. We'd play for like six hours and make like 50 bucks or something. But it was cool because people would come out and watch us in their cars and stuff. We were just started, so um, we sounded like a band that just started, but people still showed us love. But we met Guilty Verdict during that time period, um, and the way we met them was crazy, which just brings me back to their band. We were playing that day in front of Big Lots, and Guilty Verdict comes up to us randomly, tries to interrupt one of our songs, and asks for their guitar player to battle me on guitar. It was crazy. It was something that you um, normally would see in movies. I refused because, you know, they didn't even bring an amp or anything like that. They're like, we had to, it was like, we have to use your amp. You know, we like, we'll just change inputs and everything like that. But funny enough, um, seeing that guy play years later, if he was anywhere near like the skill gap level we are now than we were then, he would have murdered me. He's like such a phenomenal guitar player. But that's a little story for what happened with Punk Black during a December time period. Not Christmas based, but there you go. So let's get to some bands. First up, we have The Tulips. The Tulips are a dope band out of Atlanta. Super veterans on the scene. Really, really good. Think alternative, rock, soul, blues, some epicness. <laughs> like multiple genres, like blended together. Like really, really good, solid, clean band. They've appeared in like multiple Jordan Peele movies, whether it's like physically or musically. And uh, Guitar Gabby actually does a lot of different things on the scene. You know, she does a entertainment lawyer business. She's also working with Guitar Magazine. Just multiple dope things on the scene. Um, super proud of them and really can't wait to see what they do this upcoming year. But enough talking. Here is Another Tear by The Tulips. That was Another Tier, the 2022 remaster by The Tulips. The Tulips can be found on Instagram at The Tulips Band. That's T-H-E-T-X-L-I-P-S-B-A-N-D. Next up, we have Kokaton. Kokaton is a newer band on the scene. I think industrial, hard rock mixture with ambient wave. And they blend so many genres like really, really well. Uh, Mateo, their lead guitarist, is one of the people that works with Punk Black, helps with like social media management and music management and just helping me manage everything in my life. <laughs> really dope people, really dope band. Um, I know you're going to love them as much as I do. Here's their song, Collision. When you're wondering why, look up to the sky. That was Collision by Kokoton. Kokoton can be found on Instagram at K-O-K-U-T-O-N. Last up, but certainly not least, we have Razortail. Razortail is a new band on the scene, at least new to us. You know, we're not omnipresent. We don't know all bands that have POC in them at all times. That would be cool, but we don't. So new band to us, kind of straight for punk, but like with another edge. So you're thinking like 
double katana. <laughs> I don't know if all you nerds out there, I'm thinking of um, the uh, double katana um, that was used by the guy that turned into Sephiroth on Avon Children. If you know, you know. If you don't, you know. But basically, that's them. Double katana, double edge, solid punk band, punch you in the gut, dope punk. Without a doubt, a hundred percent a band that you will start a mosh pit in your living room too. I would say if you have like any adorable pets that cannot take you moshing in the living room, I would say just go ahead and clear them out because when you hear this song, that's exactly what you're gonna do. <laughs> and so without further ado, here's a sample of Consequence by Razor Tail. was Consequence by Razortail. Razortail can be found on Instagram at razortail.atl. That's R-A-Z-O-R-T-A-I-L dot A-T-L. Well, my friends, that's all I have for you this month. Thank you so much for listening. More information about the band's mission today is available on wab.org slash citylights and, of course, punkblack.com. So for WAB City Lights, I'm Vaughn Phoenix. Please be safe out there and be kind to each other. City Lights music contributor Vaughn Phoenix. More information about the bands that Vaughn mentioned today is on our website, wabe.org. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., Director Louis Kuyper tells us about his new interactive theater experience, The Golem, Storms of the South. Plus, our series, Speaking of Comedy, will feature Atlanta comedian Malika E. If you missed part of today's show, like my earlier conversation with the artist Erin Nicole Henry, you could catch up through our podcast or on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find a complete archive of our stories, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Troves. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on both Facebook and Instagram. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at wabe.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, 
Each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.